Now, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour Called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is baseball author Tom Wolfe. Tom comes from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and has published numerous essays on baseball, which were published in the Cooperstown Symposium in American Culture. He has also authored several acclaimed short stories that have been published either in the North Carolina Literary Review or in other literary forums that resulted in Tom being awarded or nominated for the Doris Betts Fiction Prize for writing fiction or also nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Tom Wolfe also co-authored the book Midnight Assassin, A Murder in America's Heartland. Tonight, however, we will be discussing Tom's latest release, The Cold Shot, Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs, and the unforgettable Major League season of 1932. Tom, what led you to write a book about the 1932 season? Um, well, first, thanks uh, for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. Um, and yeah, uh, what actually got me started on this particular project was a visit to an Iowa prison in the year 2000. Um, at that time, uh, my wife and I were doing research into the book that became Midnight Assassin, and we were investigating and getting some background information from the prison about the person who had committed this Iowa murder that we were writing about. While we were at the prison, um, we were told a story about a murderer and a prison warden who had become friends and bonded over the Chicago Cubs. They both were huge Cubs fans. The prisoner um, was a lifer. He had been in prison for almost 30 years. Um, but the warden took a liking to him and told him that if the Cubs made it to the World Series in 1932, he would take this prisoner, who was a murderer, um, to Chicago as his guest so that they could watch um, the World Series games together. Um, that story intrigued me, so I got started looking into the 1932 baseball season and um, sort of by way of that, looking into what was going on in America in 1932, and that was the basis of the research. Um, the prisoner and the warden story is not the main story in this book, um, but it's how I got started. So in a sense, your book is not solely about the famous events of the Game 3 of the 1932 uh, World Series where Ruth, quote-unquote, called his shot. This is a more of a general book about basically – Ruth and the, and, and the Cubs and the season in general. Is that correct? Yes, that, that's correct. Um, the title, of course, is The Call of Shock, um, but the subtitle is that the, it's about the unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. So the Call of Shock event happens late in the book um, because the narrative starts um, and follows the 1932 season from the beginning um, to the end. And it was a terrific season. Um, so there's, there's a lot of baseball in the book and a lot of American history. Let's talk about Ruth for a moment. Uh, what, at, by 1932, what was, what was he, what was his career like? I mean, at what stage of his career was he? I mean, in terms of his ability, was he like approaching like the final innings of his career? What was he as a player at that time? Yeah, in terms of innings, he was probably, um, somewhere in the bottom of the eighth inning. Of, uh, of a nine-inning career. Uh, he had broken into the majors, of course, in 1914 and was a pitcher with the Boston Red Sox um, for the first five years of his career. So he started as a pitcher, 
um, really in the dead ball era, um, and then became such a tremendous home run hitter, such a power hitter, uh, that he transitioned from being a, a pitcher to an everyday player. Uh, by 1932, he was still a very formidable um, batter. I mean, his, he had a very good season in 1932. It was really his last great season. Um, he had 46 home runs that, that year, hit around 340. So uh, he was still past, uh, past his prime, but um, certainly a very formidable um, figure in the batter's box. So um, the story leads us through the 1932 season to the World Series, and that is Ruth's last World Series appearance was in 1932. Now, in your book, do you talk about any other teams during 1932, or do you deal strictly with the Yankees and the Cubs? No, I really deal with the pennant races in both leagues. Um, one of the things that made the season so unforgettable was that there were two very different kinds of pennant races, um, but both very dramatic. Uh, in the American League, the Philadelphia A's had won three straight championships, American League championships, 1929, 30, and 31. So they were going for a fourth straight championship. And they had Jimmy Fox, Al Simmons, Mickey Cochran, Lefty Grove, Connie Mack was the manager. Um, so they were the favorites, actually, to win their fourth straight. Um, but the Yankees uh, beat them out. And so the, con uh, the confrontation and the contest between the Yankees and the Philadelphia Athletics um, is one component of, of the book. That was happening in the American League. In the National League, there was really a seven-team race. Every team except Cincinnati had a chance to win the pennant in the second half of the season. Um, very close uh, close race. Um, there was lots of drama and controversy around the Cubs and their manager, Rogers Hornsby, and we can probably uh, talk about that a little later, but um, it was a pretty dramatic year for, for the Cubs um, and for the city of Chicago. Um, so I deal with both pennant races. And, of course, one of the other features of that particular year was the fact that Jimmy Fox of the Philadelphia Athletics had a chance to beat Ruth's single-season home run record. Um, Ruth set the record with 60 home runs in 1927. Fox was on pace to actually hit 68. Um, in 1932, he tailed off a little bit at the end of the season and wound up with 58. Um, but Fox was only 24 years old. It was um, one of baseball's best seasons by an individual player, even though the Philadelphia Athletics wound up finishing second. Getting back to the Chicago Cubs, uh, who were the key players for the Cubs in that 1932 season? Well, their player manager was Roger Hornsby. Okay. Um, and he was definitely past his prime as a player. Um, he was basically a utility infielder um, at this stage in his career. He had a number of uh, injuries. So they were led, the Cubs were really led by a very strong pitching staff. Um, Charlie Root, Guy Bush, Pat Malone, a rookie named Vaughn Warnicky, um, and a veteran, uh, Burley Grimes, who had been traded for in the offseason. So they had strong pitching, a solid infield. Uh, Billy Herman, Willie English, Charlie Grimm were the infielders. Uh, Kai Kai Kyler uh, was an outfielder who was, he's a Hall of Famer. Gabby Hart, a Hall of Famer, was the catcher. Um, so it was a very strong Cubs, Cubs team. Um, but 
primarily dominated by their pitching staff. Now, tell us, why was uh, Rogers Hornsby fired by the Cubs late in that season? What happened? Well, Hornsby had two passions. Um, one of them was baseball, and the other one was betting on horse races. Um, and although he was the second highest paid player in the major leagues, um, he was constantly in financial trouble because he was not very good at betting on horse races. Um, and during this particular season, as he was losing more money at the racetrack than he was earning as a manager, um, he began to borrow money from his players. And this got out. It bothered uh, Judge Landis, who was the commissioner of baseball, and it bothered the Chicago Cubs um, ownership. Because this was 1932. This is just 13 years after the Black Sox scandal. And so gambling and baseball, um, you know, didn't mix and... Hornsby uh, really kind of wore out his welcome in Chicago because of, of his gambling ex escapades. Why did the team select Charlie Grimm to replace him? Why Grimm? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, Grimm, I think, was a perfect antidote, really, to Rogers Hornsby because Grimm was very easygoing. Um, he liked to drink beer. He liked to play the banjo. Um, he liked to play practical jokes. He was very well liked by his players. And it had been a pretty tense clubhouse from the beginning of spring training all the way up to the day that Hornsby was fired. I believe it was August 2nd, 1932. Mm -hmm. So Grimm was just a totally, he was, I think, a, a relief to the rest of the players um, because he was more like them. Um, he didn't impose the kind of strict rules on the team and on players that uh, Hornsby did. Um, he was kind of one of the guys, and he was a good player, um, uh, you know, very good uh, fielder and a, and a good hitter. So he was well-respected by his teammates, and um, I think for most of those Cup players that year, it was just a relief not to have um, Hornsby looking over their um, shoulder or um, making decisions in the dugout. Now, in your book, you also talk about another famous incident that was later uh, immortalized in a novel by Bernard Malamud and also immortalized in the silver screen in the movie The Natural. Can you tell our audience about the Billy Jurgis, uh, is that the way you pronounce his last name, uh, Jurgis shooting incident? Right. Well, Billy Jurgis was the Cubs' rookie shortstop. Uh, he had been playing in the minors at Reading, Pennsylvania, in the 30 and 31 seasons and had made the team because he was a really good fielder. He had made the team as a utility infielder and then became the starting shortstop um, during the 1932 season. Um, he was in a relationship for about a year with a very pretty young woman named Violet Popovich. Um, Violet had ambitions to be a showgirl. Um, she liked hanging around with athletes and she and Jurgis began dating sometime in 19. 31. Um, Jurgis's teammates kind of took him aside and thought that this was maybe not the best thing for him to be um, dating this particular woman, um, especially in the middle of a pennant race. And so they encouraged him to break up with her. And finally he did. Mid-season about, um, he broke up with her, that he didn't want to date her anymore, that he was too focused on baseball. But she wouldn't give up. Um, and what happened on July 6th was that the Cubs had just returned from a long road trip, and Violet 
came to Billy's room in the Hotel Carlos, you know, just a few blocks away from Wrigley Field. Um, she decided that she was going to make one last attempt to kind of make this relationship work. Um, she spent the morning drinking to kind of fortify her nerves. And then she put a loaded pistol in her purse, went up to Billy's room, knocked on the door. Um, at that point, Billy didn't know exactly what was up. He had been trying to steer clear of her. She came in the room. He asked her what she wanted. She said she wanted a glass of water. He went and got her a glass of water. And when he came back with the water, she had pulled the gun out and pointed her at her head. Um, her intentions were never completely clear. Apparently, her plan was to shoot Billy and then shoot herself. But when she pulled the gun out, Jurgis jumped at the gun. Um, the gun went off three times. They were both shot. She was shot in the arm. Billy was shot in the hand and through the um, rib cage. Not seriously, as it turned out. Um, both of them survived. Um, Jurgis was back in action, actually, about uh, less than three weeks later. And then Violet went on to try to revive her career as a, as a showgirl. Um, she had a nightclub act that she called Bear Cub Follies, and she billed herself as the girl who shot for love. Um, but that was, uh, that's the Jurgis story with uh, Violet, Violet Popovich. Um, pretty dramatic, right in the middle of a pennant race. And as you say, it was one of the incidents that informs Bernard Malamud's novel, The Natural. So are you saying she never went to jail? No, she didn't go to jail. Um, <laughs> they went before a judge in Chicago, and um, he was very, very sympathetic to the Cubs. And um, he said he didn't want to do anything and didn't want to rule from the bench on any issue that might distract the Cubs or um, interfere with their chances of, of winning the pennant. So Billy Jurgis said that he did not want to press charges. Violet said that she was not going to harass or stalk Billy anymore. They would just be friends. And so the relationship didn't continue between the two of them, um, but she did not go to jail. Um, there was a little more drama later in the season because it turned out that uh, Jurgis had written a number of love letters to her, and she had given those to someone who wanted to publish them in a booklet called The Love Letters of a Shortstop. So Jurgis did go back into court and um, with Violet, actually. They both went to court to have the uh, publication of those letters suppressed by the judge. And it was the same judge who had ruled initially in, in the case. So Violet got off. Um, she was uh, perhaps, generously speaking, a little misguided. And, um, you know, I think that uh, in the end, nobody in Chicago wanted anything to distract uh, the Cubs from their quest for the, for the pennant. Now let's go to the immortal game three of the 1932 World Series. Now you say you, you talk about you talk about the game and the cold shot incident. Based on your research, I mean, there's still debate today about, I mean, it's not so much the, because I know the story. I know he told Gabby Hartnett at home plate, it only takes one to hit it out. And that's, of course, calling your shot. But of course, the debate is, did he actually point to the fence or was he just merely gesturing towards like the Cubs third base dugout based on your research? What is your interpretation of that immortal event? Yeah, I wish I had a definitive answer, but I'll, I'll tell you what I have kind of um, kind of resolved in my own mind, which is that 
the event itself, that at bat, which maybe took three minutes total and has become sort of the most famous and most overanalyzed at bat in baseball history, uh, it was a it was a dramatic scene. There were fifty thousand fans. Um, Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt were in the crowd. Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak was in the crowd. Judge Landis was there. The Cubs had been bench jockeying, um, shouting insults at Ruth all the, all game, all through the series. Um, so Ruth came up to bat in the bottom of the fifth inning. He'd already hit one home run and narrowly missed the second along a long fly ball. So he was pretty pumped up. Um, I would say that probably every time Ruth came to bat in his career, he was thinking about hitting a home run. And he did hit a home run once every 12 at-bats in his career. So it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't unrealistic for him to be thinking, I'm going to hit one of Charlie Ruth's pitches out of here. Um, there were two videotapes made, both from the third day side, that are in existence today. And in both of the videotapes, you can see Ruth pointing. And clearly, early in the count, he's pointing at the Cubs' dugout, signaling with one figure, finger that he just had one strike on him after the first pitch. Um, on the videotape, you can see that his arm is raised and he's pointing. It's not clear from the angle if he's pointing to right center field or if he's just pointing in the general direction of the outfield. He's certainly pointing, and the home plate umpire later said that Ruth did turn to him and say, I'm going to hit the next one out. Um, Ruth, on the fifth pitch, did hit a home run. He hit it past the flagpole over the stands in um, center field, the longest home run ever hit to that point in, in Wrigley Field. The debate, as, as your question poses, is was that what he intended to do? And I think my interpretation is he intended to hit a home run. He intended to embarrass the Cubs. Um, he was supremely confident that he could do that. Whether or not he actually pointed to the spot where the ball landed, I think is questionable. Um, and the players who were there, the eyewitnesses who were there, split almost 50-50 on whether or not Ruth was pointing to the spot where the ball was actually hit. I remember as a kid reading a story where Ruth talked about it. He said he didn't really point. I don't know if you saw the same story. He didn't point to a specific spot. He kind of, kind of waved the hand around. He wanted to do it. He said he was burning. He just wanted to just wanted to get a good pitch and get some good wood on it, but he didn't really point to a precise spot. Do you get that same impression based on your own personal research? I get that impression. Um, I, I think that that's true. And I, I've seen, you know, several reports about Ruth in later years being asked, did he actually call a shot in terms of pointing to the exact spot? And he never claims it. Um, he never, he said he would have been crazy to have, to have done that. Um, and, of course, Charlie Root, who was the Cubs pitcher, said if he had seen Ruth point, like he was pointing to where he was going to hit a home run, Ruth would have drilled, Root would have drilled Ruth with the next pitch. Um, I don't think Root really would have thrown the ball at, at, at Ruth. Um, and I think that Ruth realized it was a dramatic moment. Um, he was in our center stage. Um, and, as you say, he was waving in the direction of the fences. Um so I guess it depends on what you mean by calling your own shot. But I would say it was pretty bold of Ruth in that situation, a 4-4 tie game, third game of the World Series on your opponent's 
field with uh, the fans all yelling at you, pretty dramatic to signal in any way that you're going to hit a home run. And then to do it on the next pitch, I think that's pretty remarkable. Tell me, is that was the very last World Series home run Ruth hit. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Tom, what is your we'll go, yeah, we'll go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was just gonna say Ruth really knew how to knew how to milk a moment to get everything out of it. I mean, there he was a showman in every <coughs> sense of the sense of the word. And um, supremely confident in his ability. Tom, what's your favorite baseball team? Um <laughs> really as a longtime baseball fan, I should have a favorite team. Um I don't really as when I was growing up in Ohio. Um, I was a Mickey Mantle fan, so I grew up as a Yankee fan. Um, after Mantle retired, I became a Cincinnati Reds fan. Um, I moved to Seattle when I was in my 20s, became a Seattle Mariners fan. Um, now I would say I'm just a baseball fan. Okay. Tom, where can readers find your book? Uh, the book is available online um, from all the online um, sellers. It will be available as an audio book, I believe, uh, May 29th. And it is available through independent bookstores, and it's available from the University of Nebraska Press website. So it's, um, it's out there. It's called Shot, Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs, and the unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. And I hope baseball fans will take a look at it. You know, Tom. Whenever I I love interviewing authors, and this is the this is one standard question I ask all the authors I talk to. When you were growing up, what authors inspired you to become a writer in your own right? I mean, was there someone in particular you read, and I thought, oh, I wish I could be a writer like him, and and reading that person, male or female, gave you that inspiration and that spark to become a writer? Is anyone come to mind? Well, I started. You know, very, very young, when I was first learning to read, I began reading um, a biography series, uh, all in little orange books. And some of the first ones I found in our public library were about baseball players. So I was kind of hooked on baseball and reading. Um, then I read I read Hardy Boys Mysteries. I read Nancy Drew Mysteries. Um, I didn't really have a favorite author. Uh, I think I was influenced, however, by my mother who had always wanted to be a writer and was a big reader. And so I wouldn't say until maybe I was in college and I began reading writers like Philip Roth and Saul Bellow, um, who were favorites of mine. Um, I wouldn't say that I really developed a favorite writer until much later um, in my life. With regards to your fiction work, um, can you do, what, what type of fiction do you write? I mean, is there a specific genre or style that you use when you write your works of fiction? Um, I would say it's literary fiction, um, all contemporary. I don't write any science fiction. I don't write historical fiction. Um, a couple of the stories that I've published have been about relationships. One is about um, a young boy growing up in a small town in Ohio who's, um, who is part of, a, of what happens to a – he's involved in a murder. He's not – um, someone who commits the murder, but he's affected by the murder and then later um, becomes friends with uh, one of the people who was involved in, in the murder case. And that's more of a story about how people deal with the past um, and deal with um, grief and loss. 
What is your what is your next book? Oh, sorry, get a little garbled. What is your next book project, and when can we expect its release? Um, I um, I wish I could give you a definite answer to that. Um, my wife and I are um, doing research into another Iowa murder case, and mm. so I expect the next book will be um, back in the true crime genre, similar to Midnight Assassin. Um, I am doing some short pieces on baseball. I've done some essays on baseball, and I'm going to do some uh, book reviews of baseball works. But um, the next book is uh, kind of, um, you know, to be written, I would say. Okay. Tom, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show, and I wish you and your wife uh, the best of luck in your future literary endeavors. And when your next works come out, please let me know. I'd love to have you or or your wife on again, okay? Uh, that would be terrific. I really appreciate it. It's been a great interview and great to get to know you. Um, I'm, I'm very appreciative. You, uh, thank you very much, Tom. And you take care. You and your wife, be safe, okay? Okay, thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, and you're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for our next show, where I will be interviewing author David Dupuy about his biography of the late NHL goaltending legend Terry Sawchuk on the 50th anniversary of Sawchuk's death. Thank you, and good night.